millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 6, Only the Cold. Hi and welcome. I'm Yoke Boy, podcasting from England, and my co-host today, as ever, is Lady Guinevere. Hello, listeners. Yeah, it's Lady Gwyn here in Boston, and today we're giving you an episode all about Jon Snow. We've already covered the RLJ theory in detail in the previous episode, so we'll focus on different things today. Yeah, we're going to talk about leadership in John's arc, which is a central theme for him. Then we will be taking a very close look at the burning Jon Snow issue, his fate at the end of A Dance with Dragons. We've put what happened to him under the microscope and we'll be sharing our thoughts about his fate there. Yes, that will be in-depth and we'll provide quite a serious amount of evidence from the text for what we believe happened to him. We're also going to look at John's romantic side, and we'll welcome a very special guest, co-host of the Rethinking Romance Project at westeros.org, Dog Lover, will be joining us. And we'll have three readings set to music today, and to tie in with the romance discussion, Lady Gwyn will be reading The Cave Scene, and a certain lordly kiss. <laughs> okay. You signed up for that one, didn't you? I did. <laughs> So if you're one of those people who's told us that Lady Quinn has a sexy voice, and that's happened a few times now, I recommend staying tuned for that one. Right, and we also have an idea for what Jon Snow's birthday might be, as we believe that it isn't Jon Snow. And also today we have a Jon Snow song from the fandom, and a lot more small touches to break up the talking. So let's get going with Jon Snow. Hi, I'm Dog Lover, representing the Rethinking Romance Project at westeros.org, and I'll be talking to Yoke Boy about Egret and John later, so stay tuned! Now we're going to start out this episode by taking a brief look at John's character and formative relationships. Yeah, that's a good idea, just to give a grounding. So first we see John being a big brother to Bran in the first chapter of A Game of Thrones. As Garrod, the Night's Watch deserter, is about to be executed, John gives Bran some advice. He says, don't look away. Father will know if you do. Right, and after Garrod's execution, that scene continues. He put a hand on Bran's shoulder, and Bran looked over at his bastard brother. You did well, John told him solemnly. John was 14, an old hand at justice. 
Now, moments later, Rob observes, the deserter died bravely. He had courage at the least. And John replies, no, it was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. So this scene reveals a lot about John's character and his relationship with his brothers and his father. He's a leader, something we'll be discussing in depth shortly, and an observer of people. He's quiet and solemn and understands justice. He appears to share a warm and close relationship with both of his brothers as well as his father, though he doesn't seem to think much of Theon. Right, maybe that's his talent for observing people in play there. Yeah, could be. So uh, we'll be talking about John's actions when they discover the direwolves in the next segment. But for now, we want to focus on Ghost. Yeah, so John thinks he hears the albino direwolf as the party is about to ride off with the rest of the litter. Although we later learn that Ghost never makes a noise. Ghost is strikingly different from the other pups, with his weirwood-like colouring and the fact that his eyes are open when he's found, where his brothers and sisters are still blind. He crawled away, and he's discovered separately from his siblings. Yeah, there seems to be a parallel to John there, and in fact, we have this comment from George on John's character. Even in Winterfell, as a kid before the wolves, John was the bastard. He was the odd one out. The rest of them are all brothers and sisters. He's only a half-brother, so he's not as closely tied to them. He's one of them. He's part of the family. He's part of the siblings, but he's a little bit apart, too. Ghost is very similar to that. He's the albino. He's the one who makes no noise. So he's related to the other direwolves, but one apart as well. Right, so very interesting comments on John and Ghost by George there. So this is very revealing of John's place in the family. He appears to be very close with all his siblings, with the possible exception of Sansa, and yet he still holds himself apart. He really does. We see in some of his comments in his first point of view chapter that he's highly conscious of being a bastard, even to the point of becoming quite emotional about it with his uncle Benjen, whom he appears to hold in high regard and be quite close to. Yeah, he does. And quite early on, he asks Benjen about joining the Night's Watch and reveals that he's thought about it quite a lot. He even has a reply to his uncle's objections about his youth. That's right. He says... I'm almost a man grown. I'll turn 15 on my next name day. And Maester Lewin says bastards grow up faster than other children. Yeah, so there he is, setting himself apart, as he does again in Arya's chapter shortly afterwards. When she asks him why he's not in the yard practicing sword fighting with his brothers and the princes, he replies, bastards are not allowed to damage young princes. Yeah, he's clearly maybe even painfully aware of his status. But I love that line for a different reason. If you invert the prince and bastard, perhaps you get a subtle hint at the secrets of both John's and Joffrey's births. Yeah, the prince and the bastards uh, in reverse in that quote, aren't they, perhaps? So it's very nice. And getting back to Arya, John seems quite close to her, maybe the most of all his siblings. Other than Old Nan, whose tales he seems to remember quite well, He really doesn't have any predominant female influences in his life, does he? No, I mean, Kat certainly doesn't fill that role. In fact, George was once asked about Kat's relationship with John, whether she mistreated him. And this is what he said. Mistreatment is a loaded word. Did Catelyn beat John bloody? No. Did she distance herself from him? Yes. Did she verbally abuse and attack him? 
No, the instance in Bran's bedroom was obviously a very special case, but I'm sure she was very protective of the rights of her own children, and in that sense always drew the line sharply between bastard and trueborn, where issues like seating at the high table for the king's visit were at issue. And John surely knew that she would have preferred to have him elsewhere. So, in spite of the fact that Kat allowed John to live and grow up with her own children, it seems like a positive female role model has been sadly absent from John's life. Perhaps the woman who should have filled that role is carved in stone in the Winterfell crypts. Yeah, it's also worth noting that John tells Sam at one point that he dreams about the Winterfell crypts frequently. He also thinks about dreaming of his mother. Perhaps there's something in his subconscious telling him that there's a connection between the two. Yeah, it could be. And well, one thing John has no shortage of is male influences. Ned, his uncle Benjamin, Rob, Maester Lewin, Sir Roderick, and any number of his father's other men. So growing up with this brotherhood, it's perhaps no surprise that John would think the Night's Watch was a viable option for him. Yes, and we'll be discussing that foundation of male influences as a part of our next segment on John's leadership. But to lead us in, here's a pertinent reading we've prepared. Yoke boy, fetch me a block. By then all of Castle Black had come outside to watch. Even Val was at her window, her long golden braid across one shoulder. Stannis stood on the steps of the King's Tower, surrounded by his knights. If the boy thinks he can frighten me, he's mistaken they heard Lord Janos say. He would not dare to hang me. Janos Slint has friends, important friends. You'll see. The wind whipped away the rest of his words. This is wrong, John thought. Stop. Emmett turned his back, frowning. My lord. I will not hang him, said John. Bring him here. Oh, seven save us, he heard Bowen Marsh cry out. The smile that Lord Janos Slint smiled then had all the sweetness of rancid butter. Until John said, Ed, fetch me a block and unsheathed Longclaw. By the time a suitable chopping block was found, Lord Janos had retreated into the winch cage, but I and Emmett went in after him and dragged him out. No, Slint cried, as Emmett half shoved and half pulled him across the yard. Unhand me, you cannot. When Tywin Lannister hears of this, you will all rue. Emmett kicked his legs out from under him. Dolores Ed planted a foot on his back to keep him on his knees as Emmett shoved the block beneath his head. This will go easier if you stay still, Jon Snow promised him. Move to avoid the cut and you will still die, but your dying will be uglier. Stretch your neck out, my lord. The pale morning sunlight ran up and down his blade as Jon clasped the hilt of the bastard's sword with both hands and raised it high. If you have any last words, now is the time to speak them, he said, expecting one last curse. Janos Slint twisted his neck around to stare up at him. Please, my lord, mercy, I'll go, I will, I'll... No, thought John, you close that door. And so ended the watch of Lord Janos Slint. And thanks, Yoke Boy, for a great reading. I have to say that I like sharing out the responsibility for readings, and I hope you're planning to do more. Well, that was my first one, isn't it? And yeah, I really enjoyed it, so I don't see why not. Oh, great. And speaking of readings for you listeners, all of our short readings are now available on our website, RadioWesteros.com. 
So if you're in the mood for story time, wander on by and check out our collection. Only a word of warning, our story time is not child-friendly. No, definitely not child-friendly. Not with the topics we have on the agenda for today's episode. Yep, and so with that caveat, let's move on to our discussion of John's leadership. One of the reasons we selected that particular scene is because it's viewed as a pivotal moment for John, where he really took the reins of the Night's Watch and made a solemn judgment in the vein of what he learned from Ned about justice. Right. But of course, the foundation of John's leadership style has been laid long before this, as far back as when we first see him in Game of Thrones, actually. Yeah, when we first see John in that scene where Ned has been called to execute Garrod, the Night's Watch deserter. Here we learn about stark justice for the first time, but we also learn some key things about John. And it's in Bran's point of view, and it's from him that we learn, as we mentioned earlier, that John is an old hand at justice, but also that his half-brother is extremely perceptive. And very quickly, we see him act on that quality when he convinces Ned to let the children keep the direwolf pups by leaving himself out of the count. Right. Upon observing that there are five wolf pups, three males and two females, he says to Ned, You have five true-born children, three sons, two daughters. The dire wolf is the sigil of your house. Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. Yeah, and this is in some ways a selfless but very clever manoeuvre by John, which makes us immediately take notice of his ability as a diplomat. Yeah, I think so. And later, in his own point of view, we witness him observing the welcoming feast for King Robert and his family. He sees right through Cersei's smile and finds Robert a great disappointment, thinking that here was just a fat man walking like someone half in his cups. When his uncle Benjamin comments on Ned's apparent unhappiness, we learn that John has noticed it as well. He thinks a bastard has to learn to notice things, to read the truth that people hid behind their eyes. So early on, we see that John, as a bastard, is perceptive and he understands justice and is able to manipulate situations to cause favourable outcomes. These qualities will prove to be the keys to his leadership style as he evolves into a leader of men. Yeah, and we should also consider the fact we left off with before the reading that John grew up among a community of men and his education probably closely mirrored Rob's, who was being groomed to be the future Lord of Winterfell. They would have had a number of strong male influences from Ned and Benjen to Meister Lewin and Sir Roderick, and living in a castle, male role models would be present in all aspects of daily life, so John had the opportunity to observe many kinds of male leadership in action. Yes, he did, and we know he was observant, so it's logical to imagine that he absorbed many lessons here, not only from his main role models, but also from the likes of Hullen, Micken, and Jury Cassell. Knowing the organisation of a castle and a lord's retinue would surely leave him well qualified to take the reins of a male organisation such as the Night's Watch. It's true, and by the time that happens, one could argue that he was uniquely qualified for that role. But in the meantime, while he has the foundation early on, he has to build upon it. Yeah, he does have to build on it, and I think that's what he does. Moving ahead to his first days at the Wall, we see John learn a sharp lesson from Donald Noy after some of his fellow recruits attack him in the armory. John's victories in the training yard had earned their hatred. Donald accuses John of being a bully. 
using the advantages of his upbringing to humiliate his opponents. He tells John that he had best start thinking about the backgrounds and abilities of his fellow recruits, or sleep with a dagger by your bed. Yeah, so Donald is really forceful, and this turns out to be a valuable lesson in empathy for John, one we'll see him act on time and again when he has to deal with the wildlings. Right, first as a spy, and then when he makes the decision to let them cross the wall as Lord Commander. But before we look at the wildlings, let's talk about Jor Mormont and Maester Aemon. Yeah, those two are very important influences on John. The first time we see John with Maester Aemon, he's manipulating an outcome in nearly the same way he did with the direwolves in that first chapter. He convinces Aemon to take Samuel Tarly as a steward by using logic and a lesson he learned from Maester Lewin about diversity. And John really shows his powers of observation and skill as a diplomat there. After he makes his case, Eamon tells him, Maester Lewin taught you well. Your mind is as deft as your blade. Well, we know he succeeds with Sam, but at the same time, he makes an enemy of Chet, Maester Eamon's former steward, who was displaced in the process. This will have serious consequences in the future when a disgruntled Chet takes part in the mutiny during the Great Ranging. It's also not unlike John's future decision to let the wildlings cross the wall, which we'll see shortly has dire consequences. Uh, play on dire, was that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and John seems to have a blind spot for the negative results of his decision-making. Even when he makes perfectly sound decisions, like convincing Eamon to release Sam from training, and later allowing wildlings to cross... He might not fully anticipate the reactions of people around him. That's right. Now, when John is accepted into the Night's Watch, he's named Steward to Lord Commander Mormont. At first, he's angry seeing Alistair Thorne's vengeance in denying him a place with the Rangers. But Sam points out that Mormont requested him specifically, which can only mean one thing, being groomed for command. Right, and John accepts the challenge. He has some key interactions with the Lord Commander, which culminate in John saving Mormont from the White Othor. In his capacity as Mormont's steward, he is taken into his councils, made aware of key events in the realm, and as a reward for saving his life, he's given the Valerian Steel Bastard Sword Longclaw. Yeah, just before that, John is given some key advice by Maester Eamon. He counsels John that love is the bane of honour, the death of duty. He's trying to convince John that he must let go of his family and their troubles in the South. In the process, he reveals his own identity, telling John that he must make his own decision and live with it for the rest of his days. And when John attempts to flee south to Rob's side, he's brought back to Castle Black by his friends, and Mormont has a heart-to-heart with him. Among other things, he says to John, When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? This sentiment is something that John must surely have had in his mind later when Stannis Baratheon appears at the wall. Yeah, well, those lessons from Lord Commander Mormont and Maester Aemon really do seem to stick with John. He realizes the truth of Mormont's words, and as things progress, he often thinks back to Aemon's wisdom. In fact, after he sends the Maester south with Sam Tarly, it seems like his words stay with him, including one phrase that's highly significant to his development. Yeah, Maester Aemon's final words to John before he leaves the wall 
echo words he spoke to his brother Aegon decades before. Kill the boy, Jon Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. These words seem to urge John towards completing his journey to being a leader. Okay, well, it really seems in so many scenes that John is channeling Ned Stark when he deals with Stannis. He's firm, courteous, honest, and honorable, and at the same time, not afraid to stand up to him. In fact, he seems to embody the quality that Cotter Pike seemed to be looking for in a Night's Watch Lord Commander, someone who has the belly to stand up to Stannis Baratheon and that red bitch. That red bitch. And we see quite early that Stannis measures him up and judges that he's Ned's son, going as far as to offer him Winterfell. Yes, he does, but at a price. Not only must he declare for Stannis and abandon hope that any of his trueborn siblings still live, he must leave the Night's Watch, marry Val, and burn the Winterfell heart tree. It's that last condition that really weighs on John. When he thinks of it, his conclusion is, I have no right. Winterfell belongs to the old gods. Yeah, and John's quite religious with the old gods. And this really seems to make his decision, especially when he's rejoined by Ghost after a long separation. He realises that Ghost has this weird colour scheme and that he also belongs to the old gods. Given his connection with Ghost, it seems like John realises that he himself belongs to the old gods and could no more sacrifice the Winterfell heart tree than he could Ghost. He's about to stand up to Stannis and Mel and say no. When, in the final choosing ordered by Stannis, he's chosen Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Yeah, he is, and he immediately sets about making difficult decisions. He plans to send Sam away with Maester Aemon and Gilly and Dalla's boy to save the Maester and the infant from Mel's fires. He's ruthless in this decision, reminding himself at every turn of Aemon's advice to kill the boy. And then, when he comes to the decision that we opened with, how to deal with the mutinous Lord Janus Slint, he proves himself again to be a ruthless leader, making a decision worthy of Ned Stark. Yeah, he does, and remember the stark justice that we saw so early on in Game of Thrones. And then, when it comes to supporting Stannis' decision to let the wildlings through the wall, Jon makes his most fateful decision yet. Right. He stands up against the conservative recommendations of Bowen Marsh, arguably his second-in-command, because he's informed by his time amongst the wildlings that there are simply men and women who have the misfortune of being on the wrong side of the wall. He realises that they are not the true enemy. No, at this point, John realises that the wildlings aren't the true enemy. And in spite of Marsh's caution that they simply can't feed the wildlings and Bowen's obvious mistrust of them, John knows that allowing them to pass is not only humane, but it's the right thing to do. If the others do arrive at the wall, the wildlings camped outside would obviously become whites. So John realises that the others would have a free army and it would be the Night's Watch that they'd want to take on. Right, and when John agrees to feed the wildlings from the Night's Watch's dwindling food stores and even accepts their fighters and spearwives into his command, he sets himself up to be at odds with Marsh at almost every turn, as we'll see in the next segment. Yeah, and this friction comes to a head with John's final series of decisions regarding the wildlings and Ramsay Bolton. 
Right, but while all of this must have really seemed to bridge too far for Beau and Marsh, John sees the wildlings' value, not only in adding to the dwindling ranks of the men in black, but that in preventing their deaths, he denies the real enemy the chance to swell its undead army any further. Yeah, and as we said, we'll explore Bowen's point of view later. He just doesn't seem to understand the threat from the others. And John made the only decision he could have made here. He is perceptive and empathetic, a man of honour and justice and unfailing logic. And it's these qualities revealed to us from the very start that led John to this decision to let the wildlings through. But as with Chet, John still has this blind spot about the potential of those around him who disagree with him to cause trouble and so on. He's making a man's decisions as the leader of the Night's Watch, but in that one important respect, this blind spot, he has yet to kill the naive boy that he once was. Right. John has grown into his early promise as a leader in most ways, but that one blind spot seems to play an important role in his fate at the end of A Dance with Dragons, as we'll be discussing next. One, nine, two, kilobytes per second. Coming from your stereo. Your stereo. Radio. Westeros. Now we're going to head towards another reading, this time the end of A Dance with Dragons and the stabbing of Jon Snow. Just to set the scene, the roots of Jon's downfall seem to lie with his decisions regarding the wild things. Right, and it was a very difficult decision for Jon to make. It was a tough call to let them through and try and integrate them. Certain members of the Night's Watch really didn't like this decision. We bled to stop the wildlings at the gorge. Good men were slain there, friends and brothers. For what? This is what Bowen Marsh said, who was the Lord's steward. John wants to make common cause with the wildlings, and Bowen, who took a head wound at the Bridge of Skulls, continues to perceive them as foes. John and Bowen go on to disagree on many matters, small and large, and there's a growing sense of tension between them. Yeah, there is, and Bowen is upset that John sends out rangers, that John goes beyond the wall to initiate vows of the new recruits, that Ed and Iron Emmett are sent away, that Satin is made Lord Commander's steward, and many other issues. When John lets through thousands of wildlings, Bowen says, Some might call this treason. These are wildlings, savages, raiders, rapers, more beasts than man. Yes, treason. So we can see how strongly Bowen feels here. He counts the wildlings and points out that they'll greatly outnumber the Night's Watch. And so, despite him ignoring John's concern that these people will become whites if they're not let in, you can really understand Bowen's concerns. He's a war veteran that was almost killed by the enemy he's going to be surrounded by. He states that he thinks the wildlings will kill them all, one way or another, and so he's really genuinely concerned. Yeah, his concerns do seem genuine. And when the wildlings come through, Bowen was personally responsible for collecting all their possessions. And we see him take a pair of silver scales. This brings to mind justice. So perhaps it signifies the moment where Bowen was pushed too far in his own mind and began to plot his own brand of justice as he saw it in removing John in a kind of political assassination. Bowen shows further contempt for the wildlings. He'd rather they died than eat the Night's Watch food, which is in short supply, and tensions continue to rise. 
When John announces that he will attack Ramsay Bolton while the Night's Watch ranging to Hardhome will be led by Tormund, Bowen, Wick, and others attack John. Bowen is crying as he buries his knife in John's belly for the watch. Whatever he thought of John, these tears seem to indicate that Bowen took no pleasure from the deed, but thought it necessary. Yeah, Bowen is a man of tradition, and it seems that in his own mind, he was just pushed a couple of steps too far. And it's worth considering that Bowen's nickname is the Old Pomegranate, and there might be shades of Greek mythology here. In the story of Persephone, she enters the underworld and eats pomegranate seeds and is condemned to remain in the underworld forever. However, later she's given a reprieve and is able to return. So with this in mind, here's the stabbing of Jon Snow. When Wagwan Darwin howled again and gave Sir Patrick's other arm a twist and a pull, it tore loose from his shoulder with a spray of bright red blood. Like a child pulling petals off a daisy, thought John. Leathers, talk to him, calm him. The old tongue, he understands the old tongue. Keep back the rest of you. Put away your steel. We're scaring him. Couldn't they see the giant had been cut? John had to put an end to this or more men would die. They had no idea of one one's strength. A horn, I need a horn. He saw the glint of steel, turned toward it. No blades, he screamed. Wick! Put that knife away, he meant to say. When Wick Whittlestick slashed at his throat, the word turned into a grunt. John twisted from the knife, just enough so it barely grazed his skin. He cut me. When he put his hand to the side of his neck, blood welled between his fingers. Why? For the watch, Wick slashed at him again. This time, John caught his wrist and bent his arm back until he dropped the dagger. The gangling steward backed away, his hands upraised as if to say, Not me. It was not me. Men were screaming. John reached for Longclaw, but his fingers had grown stiff and clumsy. Somehow he could not seem to get the sword free of its scabbard. Then Bowen Marsh stood there before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch, he punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. John fell to his knees. He found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Ghost, he whispered. Pain washed over him. Stick them with the pointy end. When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades, he gave a grunt and fell face first into the snow. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. Okay, and that was the stabbing of Jon Snow. And first we're going to focus on the burning question on everyone's lips about Jon Snow and look at his fate. Yes, this was a huge moment in A Dance with Dragons. People are divided in the fandom, but we think there could be sufficient clues in the text to explain what might have happened to him. Yes, so we're going to present our ideas here. And first of all, as we heard in the reading, Jon was attacked by four knives and three were on page. There's every indication here that John suffered very serious injuries. The first cut is said to have only grazed him, but it was to his neck. 
noticed that blood welled between his fingers when he put his hand on his neck. So there was a good amount of blood and it appeared very quickly. And this small graze might mean big trouble given the neck is such a vulnerable area. Yes, blood welling so quickly might indicate a sliced artery there. Then he takes a knife in the belly and it remains buried. Again, bad news. Right, and then he takes the third knife between the shoulder blades and another he didn't feel as he collapsed. We think that this adds up to a major turning point for John, and with the debate raging about whether he's alive or he's dead, we think there's room for an eventuality that might be in the middle of those two that there's a significant amount of evidence for. We do, and so we'll be looking at the possibility that John's mind has entered ghost to begin his second life, whilst his body will be preserved in an ice cell. That's where we think the evidence is at. Yeah, that's what we think, and that he might be later returned to his body. So, looking at the stabbing, after being stabbed, John's last word was ghost, as he succumbed, unable to draw his sword. The chapter ends with this. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. Yeah, not feeling the fourth knife is mysterious, because John goes on to feel the cold. One idea is that John is paralyzed, or comatose, and that's why he could neither draw his sword nor feel the fourth knife. We can test this for two reasons. First, John couldn't draw his sword because his burnt hand had grown stiff and clumsy, as foreshadowed in Clash of Kings. And the quote from Clash is, If he let his sword hand stiffen and grow clumsy, it might well be the end of him, he knew. A man needed his sword. Then, at the stabbing, we have John reached for Longclaw, but his fingers had grown stiff and clumsy. Somehow, he could not seem to get the sword free of its scabbard. Also, John didn't feel the fourth knife, but went on to feel the cold, showing his pain receptors were working, and so he should feel the knife. They also don't feel cold in a coma. Yeah, so John not feeling a stabbing, but feeling the cold is quite mysterious then. And another explanation for John not feeling the knife but sensing cold is because he is bleeding out. We see a point of view character bleed out almost right next to John's chapter, actually. Kevin feels cold but still registers physical pain as he's attacked. And the quote is, Kevin was cold as ice and every laboured breath sent a fresh stab of pain through him. Notice the word stab is used, which takes the reader back to John. He can either feel the stabbing and feel the cold, or feel neither, it just doesn't make sense. So there must be another explanation for John's experience. And there might be several that you might be able to think of, but as we see it, none with as much foreshadowing and textual support as the following. In his prologue, we learn that when Baromir meets his fate, The sensation is very cold as he dies and enters his wolf for a second life. The quote is, True death came suddenly. He felt the shock of cold, as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. This not only takes us back to what John was feeling, but also to Mel's foretelling of John being stabbed. There is a similar emphasis on ice, frozen, and cold in a single sentence here. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen, red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. Right, ice, frozen, and cold together in a single sentence, twice there. 
So those short passages do look similar. And considering that John's last word was ghost, he was clearly trying to reach out, perhaps trying to warg. So maybe John didn't feel the fourth knife because he wasn't in his body anymore. And the cold sensation was the process of his body dying whilst entering his second life. Now, and this is true in literature generally, as it is in these books, prologues seem designed to give us information which is revelatory and important later in the story. Baromir gives us unique information about the process and rules of Second Life. It seems likely that this information was placed for a greater reason than Baromir. Yeah, that prologue doesn't really seem to offer much to the story as it stands. We get all this information about Second Life, so where's it going? And of course, telling us about Second Life like that eliminates the potential feeling of a deus ex machina if John has gone into Second Life himself. And regarding Second Life, John ponders the nature of Second Life twice regarding Bran and Rickon. In Storm, he thinks, could some part of him live on in his wolf? And then in Dance, he wondered if some part of his dead brothers lived on inside their wolves. Yes, yeah, so we do see John contemplating Second Life and what it could mean. And John is often alluded to as a king throughout the text, often very slyly, in fact. And we've talked about this before. So this could be foreshadowing from Faramir here as he talks about ghost. Mance should have let me take the direwolf. There would be a second life worthy of a king. Hmm, second life worthy of a king. Very interesting. Another intriguing quote is Mel's vision of John when she's looking into her flames in Dance with Dragons. Here it is. She heard the whispered name John Snow. Now he was a man, now a wolf, now a man again. But the skulls were here as well. The skulls were all around him. This might seem like normal warging here, but notice the skulls all around him, indicating this is related to John's death. Mel directly links this to the stabbing at other times. And you have a man becoming a wolf and then a man again. This could mean second life and resurrection too. Right, the skulls do seem to indicate that this isn't just a reference to normal wagging, we think. So there's pieces fitting together here that seem to point towards second life, we think. And we're going to talk about what effect being in Ghost for too long might have on him and how he could be resurrected or returned to his own body a bit later. But for now, we wanted to consider, if John's mind was in Ghost, what would happen to his body? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we're turning our attention to the ice cells at the wall, aren't we? Yeah, we've got our eyes on those ice cells. And just to remind you, the ice cells are carved from the base of the wall. They're actually part of the wall, and when you're in them, you're inside the wall. And John's actually been in one already. He has, and that was way back. And John became acquainted with these ice cells in A Storm of Swords when he was imprisoned, but it was off page. In A Dance with Dragons, two bodies are put inside the cells to see if they become whites. The last thing that John does before reading the pink letter, which subsequently leads to his stabbing, is to visit the ice cells and give orders regarding their upkeep. This is really revealing as to what's happening at the cells, and the timing of the scene might indicate to the reader that these cells should not be forgotten, that we've been reminded of them, and that they might be relevant. This is the biggest look at the ice cells in the books. 
So here's what's happening. With the recent heavy snow, the ice cells are becoming completely buried. The snow outside them is so thick they need to be dug out regularly. John removes all living prisoners because it's likely that they will smother. In other words, snow is covering the doors. John says the corpses will be entombed inside. It's likely that John's order to keep the cells dug out will be forgotten in the aftermath of his stabbing. Right, and that use of the word entombed is quite interesting there, I think. Mm. So whatever is put in those ice cells will at the least freeze solid and significantly, perhaps, will become part of the wall itself. With the snow sealing off the entrance, you're actually going to be trapped inside the wall. It's possible anything inside could be encased in solid ice. John himself has already slept encased in a fine glaze of ice in a Night's Watch tent. Perhaps characters like Mel might realize he's in Ghost and seek to preserve his body before resurrecting him. And as we know from Meister Eamon, cold preserves. And perhaps this could have been a hint regarding John's immediate fate. This notion is emphasised more directly by the Night's Watch stewards, who discovered that food and meat kept longer in the icy storerooms, carved from the base of the wall. And those words are exactly the same wording as the ice cells, carved from the base of the wall, and meats are being preserved there. Yeah, that seems like it could be a hint of something. And the only other scene which looks at the cells in any detail is when John pays a visit to Krieg and Karstark. And this actually might foreshadow the entire stabbing, second-life, ice cell scenario we've described. First, Mal tells him, keep your wolf beside you. And he doesn't, as with the stabbing. Next, John goes to the cell. And, rusted hinges screamed like damned souls when Wick Whittlestick yanked the door wide enough for John to slip through. Jon Snow could see his own reflection dimly inside the icy walls. This brief glimpse is the only time we see Jon in the ice cells actually described on page. And he sees himself in the ice cell. Yeah, ice isn't really a very reflective surface. And there's no other instance, other than sunlight, of a person or shape being mirrored by the wall. And Jon's seeing himself in that ice cell. And the fact that it's Wick, the first person to stab John, opening the ice cell door for John is fitting. Yeah, it would be a really good fit as foreshadowing for John's fate when he was stabbed by Wick. And here, Wick yanked the door wide enough for John to slip through. So not only is Wick opening the door for John to go in the ice cell, but the word slip is used, and slip is, of course heavily associated with warging. Faramir actually uses it four times in his prologue alone in this context, and it's used a lot more times in the books like that. Yes, slip inside a wolf, we hear that a lot. And let's not forget there's also a damned souls simile as John enters the cell, then he sees himself in there. An ominous description there in the context of what we're talking about, hinges screaming like damned souls. Right, damned souls as John enters the ice cell. And if it is foreshadowing, that does sound quite ominous. And we might also have this as foreshadowing from John's ice cell imprisonment in A Storm of Swords, which we, of course, didn't see on page. You will die in here, Lord Snow, Sir Alice had said just before he closed the heavy wooden door. And John had believed it. 
So there's Sir Alistair telling John that he's going to die in the ice cell and John pretty much agreeing with him. Right. Okay, so now let's look at prophecies to see if we have any matches for this scenario. We can start at the House of the Undying from Clash. In the House of the Undying, Danny sees this vision. A blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice. So the blue flower, the common consensus is that it's a metaphor for John. And then we have a chink in a wall of ice. So a chink, by definition, is defined as a small opening. And these ice cells are tiny, especially on the scale of a 700-foot wall. So if you imagine the scale, a chink, a small opening, this could be the ice cell that it's referring to. It's also worth mentioning that the flower is growing, it's changing and becoming, and perhaps this might indicate a change in John, which we'll discuss later. We will, but next is Bran's coma dream from A Game of Thrones, and here's a passage. Finally, he looked north. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal, and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. This initially seemed like John's early days in the Night's Watch, but the wording, his skin growing pale, seems like death, growing hard, seems like freezing, and it's in a very cold and lonely place, like an ice cell. Now it says the wall is shining like crystal, and the wall only shines like crystal in the daytime. In other words, John wouldn't be asleep in bed if this was him joining the Night's Watch. From those early days, we have the line, in a few years, he would forget what it felt like to be warm. Yeah, that's an interesting line because it can actually be read two ways. And of course, it could be George hinting to us that in a few years, John will be put in an ice cell. Well, it has been a few years since then, hasn't it? Yeah, right, because that was from the start of his Night's Watch days. And it's been a few years since that, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And the line that John would forget what it felt like to be warm is very similar to what was described in Bran's coma dream of John. Right, in the coma dream, it says that the memory of all warmth fled from him. So it sounds like they could be getting at the same thing here. Right, both passages might fit with this notion of John in an ice cell. Yeah, and so that's the evidence of our argument that John might be in second life while his body could be put into an ice cell. And next, we're going to talk about the possible connotations and why George would take this route to the purpose and how John might be returned to his own body if he's now in second life. And his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hot. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. is the memory of all fled from. So this idea of John going into the ice cells and then into second life, we must say we looked at many possibilities regarding John's fate, and there was just significantly more evidence for this scenario than any other. Yeah, there really isn't that much in terms of evidence for the other eventualities that are floating around. So that's why that particular conclusion appealed to us. John's stabbing, perhaps leading into tie-ins with various prophecies and foreshadowings, along with the symbolic connotations of him being sealed and entombed actually inside the ice wall itself, has some appeal from a literary standpoint, we think. So rather than just leaving the idea that Jon Snow's there trapped in second life and his body's in a nice cell, we really wanted to speculate a bit further now and just to throw some ideas out there. Right, and Jon's stabbing doesn't seem to us like an event with a quick and easy resolve. We think that George is preparing to change Jon's character in some way, perhaps as a precursor to the others arriving. Yeah, we think George might be taking Jon somewhere here, with it being such a huge cliffhanger. So the idea of John being in second life and his body being preserved in ice might be unappealing, especially to the many John fans out there who want to see him okay. But perhaps in the long term, there could be positive connotations for John here if he was to be resurrected. Yes, in the long term, there could be. Okay, so now let's talk about how this experience could affect John, how it might change him. So in second life, it seems like warging but your body's dead so you're trapped in the wolf a warg can't warg anymore so they remain in the animal we'll discuss how john could get back into his body later but let's look at what happens in second life yeah we should take a look well in varamir's prologue as we said this gives a suspiciously large info dump on second life the longer a person's mind resides in his wolf the beast becomes a little less a wag and a little more a wolf. So initially, the wag seems to be okay, but as time goes on, he becomes more like the wolf. His personality becomes more like the wolves. This means if John had an extended stay inside ghosts, their minds and personalities would begin to combine permanently. Eventually, the process of second life turns Awag into a, quote, true wolf. If John's mind could be returned to his body in time, his personality would be part wolf. He would probably be more feral, instinctive and aggressive. He and Ghost's mind could be mixed as one. And this change in him might be necessary if he's to confront a supernatural foe. And if so, it serves the story. And this idea of John and Ghost's mind combining came up in a chat I had with a poster called Dr Pepper a long, long time ago. So I have to thank her for the notion. 
Right. So the idea is that Second Life would combine John and Ghost's personalities somewhat. And in A Dance with Dragon, we actually see John feeling more like a wolf several times. So maybe hints. It says, No, he thought, I am a man, not a wolf. And later, I am not a wolf, he thought. And then again, Of late, Jon Snow sometimes felt as if he and the dire wolf were one, even awake. And finally, we have, Ghost is more alive than I am. Hmm, ghost is more alive than I am. And feeling he and the direwolf were one, that is interesting. So, if this was true, there might be a gift or windfall in store for John if he enters Second Life that could make him into a more effective warrior against the others. Yeah, he could be more badass. <laughs> yeah, more badass is a good way to put it. John's body being kept within the wall, sealed up in an ice cell as he awaits a resurrection, well, that already has great symbolism. But perhaps he could awake with greater cold resistance, remembering that others might bring winter with them. Yeah, so two possible ways John could come out of this as a better warrior there. But the problem with Second Life, as we currently understand it, is that you can't warg anymore. So there would have to be a way to get John back in his body, wouldn't there? Yeah, there would. And if someone realised that John was in Ghost, they might try and help him. Right. Ghost is mute, so I wonder if John would be able to make a noise. Right. Yeah, that would alert people and scare them too. Right. So that's a possibility. And it seems like Melisandre would be a candidate for some kind of resurrection procedure. She's seeing John as Azor Ahai in her flames and can sense that he's important somehow. She warned him of his death enough times and seemed worried about him. Yeah, so Mel might be involved to some capacity. And as we said, second life seems a bit like a trap. As your body is dead, you can't really go back. But perhaps John's body could be patched up, enabling him to return back to it. A resurrection would presumably require some form of miracle or magic. Yeah, you would think so. And it's difficult to say. There's a possibility that Bran could help him out, isn't there? Yeah, we do see Varamir shunt Hagen right out of his second life, out of his wolf. He actually forces or pushes him out. And it might be possible for someone to push John's consciousness back into his own body. So with Bran being such a powerful wag, we've wondered what he could do. Bran is interesting, as he might be considered king's blood. As we've mentioned several times, John is often alluded to as a king, and blood often means relative. Right, blood is often relative through the books. So Bran might be considered king's blood. So remember, king's blood to wake the dragon. Yes, and with John being the secret dragon. Prophecies are very often non-literal. George says he doesn't like making them literal or easy. And King's Blood is actually used in this context just once by Littlefinger, where he says he's not the King's Blood, meaning he's not Joffrey's relative. Right, and it would be very George, wouldn't it, if this magical King's Blood everyone is looking for and burning people for didn't actually mean literal blood but relative. <laughs> right. So there's some ideas for John's future. Will George change him? Will he wake up as Azor High with a miraculous resurrection? Or will he just need a few stitches and a kiss and makeup with Bowen Marsh? You decide, but that's our look at John's immediate fate and future. 
And with John Bowen and the Men in Black fresh in our minds, here's a message from today's sponsors. Are you a bastard, a poacher, a murderer on the run, an unlucky younger son, or just someone that doesn't like warmth? Then come and join the Night's Watch. Our purpose for thousands of years is to watch a massive wall. This has been going on so long we can't even remember why we're doing it. But don't let that put you off, we're all having a great time. We offer a generous meal plan, a new wardrobe in fashionable black, and escape from all those worries about women and money for the rest of your life. The Night's Watch, for this night and all nights to come. In case of loneliness, there's a profit clause, and nobody really cares if you go there or where you got your money from as long as you come back. Desertion is punishable by death. And there's today's sponsors, the Night's Watch on a recruitment drive. And we hope that some of you will consider. And so, Yoke Boy, would you like to join the Night's Watch? Well, Lady Gwyn, the turnip soup sounds all right, and I get to sharpen my battle skills. But there's just one thing that I couldn't live without. And what's that? Where is the romance? I just don't think Molestown Brothel would be enough for me. Oh, so you're romantic at heart, aren't you, Yoke Boy? I guess I am. So let's take this broadcast down the romantic route. We have a special guest joining us. Dog Lover, representing the Rethinking Romance Project at Westeros.org, will be here. But first, and leading in, here's Lady Gwyn reading that cave scene. A very special moment between John and the fire-headed wildling, Egret. What are you doing? Showing you how old I am. She unlaced her doe-skin shirt. Tossed it aside, pulled her three woolen undershirts up over her head all at once. I want you should see me. We shouldn't. We should. Her breast bounced as she stood on one leg to pull one boot, then hopped onto her other foot to attend to the other. Her nipples were wide pink circles. You as well, Egret said as she yanked down her sheepskin breeches. If you want to look, you have to show. You know nothing, Jon Snow. I know I want you, he heard himself say, all his vows and all his honor forgotten. She stood before him, naked as her name day, and he was as hard as the rock around them. He had been in her half a hundred times by now, but always beneath the furs with others all around them. He had never seen how beautiful she was. Her legs were skinny but well-muscled, the hair at the juncture of her thighs a brighter red than that on her head. Does that make it even luckier? He pulled her close. I love the smell of you, he said. I love your red hair. I love your mouth and the way you kiss me. I love your smile. I love your teats. He kissed them, one and then the other. I love your skinny legs and what's between them. He knelt to kiss her there, lightly on her mound at first, but he gripped, moved her legs apart a little, and he saw the pink inside and kissed that as well and tasted her. She gave a little gasp. If you love me all so much, why are you still dressed? She whispered. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Nothing. Oh, 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 oh.
A very interesting reading there from the one and only Lady Gwyn. As mentioned, we're now going to talk about the romance between John and Egret. And with me is a very special guest representing the Rethinking Romance Project at Westeros.org. A very warm welcome to Dog Lover. Hi, Oak Boy. Thanks for inviting me to be here on Radio Westeros. And thanks for being here. So before we talk about the romance project that you and Lysinia are running, let's discuss John and Egret's romance. Sure. So as with most romances in A Song of Ice and Fire, John's relationship with Egret is critical to his arc. His experience with her helps shape his future actions and decisions as the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Right. She acts as a protector, his first love and lover, and provides John access to the wildling way of life. Yeah, and uh, during this time with Egret and the Wildlings, he finds out they really aren't the enemies he was raised to believe. So when John first sees Egret, he's about to kill her as an enemy combatant. But when he realises she's a woman, he takes her captive instead. This act alone can be seen as a statement of John's humanity. Right, and uh, Corrin tells John that they can't take captives and orders John to do what he needs what needs to be done. So John hesitates when he looks into Egret's eyes and he detects no evil in her, uh, so he lets her go. Uh, then later, he infiltrates the wildlings on Corrin's command. After Egret's efforts to save his life, they become lovers and fall in love. Yeah, and initially John is reluctant to succumb to Egret's sexual assertiveness. It's not that he doesn't want her, but he's a man of the Night's Watch. And as Ned Stark's son, he holds his vows and honour as sacred. He's been raised to be deeply suspicious of wildlings, and Egret is a wildling through and through. Right. He's deeply conflicted by his desire for her and his vows and identity as a Stark. Yet, you know, Egret's insistence that he sealed the deal, the pressure she places on him to prove he's turned cloaked to the wildlings by betting her, and his own sexual desires lead him to act. So his first sexual experience with Egret is a transition from boyhood to manhood. Yeah, and this kill the boy and let the man be born is a recurring theme in John's arc, isn't it? Yes, and uh, John's guilt over repeatedly breaking his vow of chastity lessens over time as he spends more time with Egret and the Wildlings, which I also think symbolizes his growing respect and fondness for the Wildlings. Right, and we have this quote. I am a man of the Night's Watch, a small voice inside insisted, but every night it seemed a little fainter, and when Egret kissed his ears or bit his neck, he could not hear it at all. So it's hard to determine if John and Egret were in lust or you know, in love before they consummated the relationship. I actually do think John was immediately drawn to Egret's feistiness. You know, remember, she did remind him of Arya, and she was clearly drawn to him. But either way, they did love each other by the time they parted. Right, but Egret, who is quite wise, deep down probably knew John was really still loyal to the Night's Watch cause. Uh, yes, but ultimately there is real genuine love expressed between the two. You know, for example, when they're alone in the cave, you know, that moment is just so deeply intimate and arousing and such a perfect expression of young love. And John's desire to explore sexually expresses feelings of love and affection for Egret, so it's really not just about him. And then when Egret says that they should just stay in that cave forever, I think they both knew that things couldn't really last between them. Right, I got that sense too. And what's really interesting about John's time with Egret is what a humanizing experience it was for John. He's infiltrated the wildlings on orders, 
but develops an understanding and respect for them and is truly empathetic. Right. And, you know, the more embedded he becomes with the wildlings, the more conflicted he becomes because not only, you know, he wants to stay loyal to the Night's Watch and his vows, but he also doesn't want to betray the wildlings, which can also potentially place Egret in harm's way. But ultimately, you know, he took a vow to guard the wall and Egret and her people are determined to destroy it. Uh, she isn't going to leave her people and her way of life and, and John is going to stay true to the Night's Watch and the vows he took. Okay, and one of the most dramatic moments between John and Egret occurs when John receives an order to kill an innocent man he and the Wilding Party cross paths with when moving south. Right, and before they come across the man, you know, John and Egret were just having a discussion about their cultural differences, and John thinks to himself, like, God, Egret, she's just so very wildling. When the wildlings test John by insisting he kill the innocent man, he refuses, and Egret uh, does it herself to prove that she's no crow's wife, which was an insult thrown at her from another member of the party. And I also think this is a moment where Egret really missed herself that John is still a crow. Yeah, and this moment offers John an escape from the wildlings, which he takes. Yeah, and uh, regardless of the love feels for Egret, you know, John can't be with her or these people. But in spite of their differences, John knows that they have just as many similarities. Uh, they really aren't the true enemy, and they're just people desperately trying to survive and escape the others. Right. And Egret's story about Bail the Bard and their discussion about John's mother being just a woman, and Egret's response, most women are, telling John that his own mother was probably not much different than her own, was a touching and important lesson for John that her people and his aren't as different from each other as John initially thought. Yeah, and you know, even after John escapes the Wildlings and he makes his way back to Castle Black, Egret remains in his thoughts and dreams, and more significantly, his time with her and her people, but especially with her, really forms the man he's becoming. His time with her, as well as the other Wildlings, really teaches him that the Wildlings are regular people and they just have a different social and political structure. Yeah, just like in Westeros, there are good Wildlings who do bad things and morally challenged wildlings who are capable of doing good things. There's this greyness. And just like people in Westeros, they care deeply about their families and loved ones. And they're really terrified. They want to get south of the wall for their own safety. The others are coming, and John really understands that. Yeah, and as, uh, at this point in John's arc, he has really grown exponentially, you know, from a young bastard who struggled to find himself and his purpose, purpose in the world, and even at the wall, to a reluctant lover and infiltrator, to a reluctant leader. But, you know, it's his long-term vision and progressive thinking that makes him the best leader in the face of catastrophe. You know, Egret, in her own way, played a role in killing the boy. Now we readers are left to wonder if the boy is gone for good and if the man will be born. Excellent. And that's a theme that we touched on earlier in the show. So Dog Lover, thanks so very much for providing all these notes for this conversation that we've just had. It was my pleasure. And uh, thank you for the segment on Rethinking Romance. Lucinia and I are so very flattered and excited. And we're glad to have you on. Okay, so now let's talk about romance and the projects you are involved with. First of all, as with John and Egret, the few glimpses of romance in the books are sometimes or part of a tragedy, or other times unfulfilled romances. Is this bittersweet element something that draws you in as a romance fan? Uh, yes, absolutely, because real love is bittersweet. You know, even in the most healthy romances, people get hurt, they have to make sacrifices, or that they find the relationship makes others feel uncomfortable. Um, it's the bittersweet aspect that really makes it so realistic. You know, love is messy, it's incredibly complicated, and there's no real formula. Okay, I think I can agree with that. So, Rethinking Romance, your project co-hosted with Lucinia, 
It's hosted at westros.org and has many contributors analysing romances in A Song of Ice and Fire in great detail. We'll link to it on our website if any of you listeners want to check it out. And we really like this project. One of the reasons why is that it was a nice surprise to find a reread and analysis project on this particular topic. One of the more overlooked facets of George R.R. R. Martin's writing. Well, you know, not only is romantic love crucial to the human experience, which is why it's such a central theme to most genres of literature, film, and music, but George Martin is a self-professed romantic, and it was surprising to me and my co-host Lucinia that so many readers didn't think romance was a major theme, or even worse, think George Martin hates romance and has a nihilistic attitude towards it. And you and Lucinia strongly disagree with that, don't you? Absolutely. Lucinia and I find A Song of Ice and Fire incredibly romantic. Now, as someone who has a background in military history, I was actually surprised by how drawn in I was by the romantic relationships in the series, when I really was expecting to get caught up in the battles and the whole War of the Five Kings. Right, and this project started around a year ago. Lucinia has told us that the original idea was to create a sort of love wiki, since the usual summaries and analysis so often ignore or downplay matters of the heart. Can you comment on how you brought that ideal to reality and how it picked up steam? Well, the romantic relationships are incredibly significant, often acting as a catalyst for key events. And the senior was disappointed that these relationships are barely covered in the uh, Ice and Fire wiki. So she was really the one who came up with the idea of a love wiki, which I thought is so cool. It is a love wiki. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah. And we think any of these romances can stand on their own, which is why we want to give the fans an opportunity to read the scene by scenes and analysis and evaluate or reevaluate them on their own merits. Uh, So far, the responses we've received have been incredibly positive and we get a lot of encouragement which is always really validating yes and you deserve all the positive recognition that you get so the project as it stands focuses on 10 romantic pairings john egret jamie brianne danny drogo danny dario asha carl renly loris sansa sandor rob jane regal liana and aya gendry how did you pick those Well, most of them were a no-brainer for us. Lysinia and I, especially Lysinia, really felt like we were always defending Sandor and Sansa, Jamie and Brienne, and Danny and Drogo on the general forum. Um, The other ones are less controversial, but I think they really feel to the fan base as much as they do us. And my only concern was Arya Gendry, because I really didn't think there was enough textual evidence to argue that could even be considered a romance. Mm -hmm. But Lysinia was really excited about it. And as soon as she recruited Book Nerd 2 as our Arya Gendry specialist, I was 100% on board. Okay, and how did you determine what actually constitutes a romance? Well, C and I often found ourselves debating with general forum posters regarding certain romances. Many were appalled that we considered Jamie and Brienne, Sansa and Sandor, and Danny Drogo romances, simply because I think the relationships made them feel uncomfortable, or they thought it was inappropriate, maybe because of age difference, or because a character was too dark to be considered a love interest. Right. Um, but, you know, romance is messy, and it can cause both pain and pleasure. And also, just because a couple or potential couple doesn't experience physical intimacy with each other, it doesn't negate that the fact a romance exists. So the early part of the story, where the characters are really first drawn to each other, is also part of the romance. And it's important to see the stories in the context of the world of Westeros. You know, A Song of Ice and Fire is a fantasy that's set in a very different time and place. And overall, Lysenia and I really wanted to have a place where the fandom can have an adult and objective conversation about love and romance without the, oh, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, that's not that kind of story. And it's romance you're after, you should be reading different books. 
Right. Uh, Song of Ice and Fire has got so many different characteristics, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. And romance is a part of it. So I've read quite a few posts like that, kind of dismissing the romance. You're running this project with Lucinia, another poster we like a lot here at Radio Westeros, so a shout out to you. Can you tell me how you chose contributors that work with you and write essays? Yeah, uh, we ask for members who we know respect the romance aspect of the relationship and can really do it justice. Alicina is much more active on the general and show boards than I am, and she's really familiar with the members and their take on things. And uh, so she does a lot of our recruiting, and I knew I wanted Sean F. Oh, Sean F., I like his posts. Yeah, he's good, and uh, we really wanted him for Rob Jane because he's always so active and threads about them. And I just really like what he has to say in general so it was really nice to have them on board and we also wanted a mix of newer members and veterans you know as well as completely different styles for variety so posters new and old for this project i really like that ethos it's a very good policy i think so we know that standards are very high and every piece of work at rethinking romance is worth a read but do you and lasinia have a favorite piece Mm, it's hard to really pick a standout since they're all so good. Uh, Weirwood Eyes wrote the John and Egret romance, and she did an amazing job going really both deep and broad, and I was just so impressed. But overall, I'm going to have to say, for me, Book Nerd 2's essays on Arya Gendry and Rhaenys Balerion's Danny Drogo essays, because both really forced me to reevaluate not only the romance aspect, but the individual characters, whereas, you know, I was pretty much already on the same page as with the other contributors. Um, Lucinia just really likes a variety of approaches and um, the different styles. And, you know, we really wanted the, the contributors to have the freedom to present the stories in their own way. Right. And it sounds like you have a really great ethos overall. Can you tell us what the future holds in store for this Rethinking Romance project? Do you and Lucinia have further plans for it? Well, we really want to wrap up the initial 10 and we're getting close. But, you know, when we're done, we do want to explore other romances, you know, such as Ned and Kat, Jamie and Cersei, uh, Bran's crush on Mira and Sam and Gilly. Right. And finally, can you tell us why a consideration of romance in these books is so important in fully understanding the text? Well, it's worthy of consideration because romance plays such a central role in the character's decision-making process and has a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. So there wouldn't even be a Song of Ice and Fire without Rhaegar and Lyanna. And I don't think you can truly understand Sansa and her arc without recognizing her feelings for the Hound. I mean, they have a very classic Beauty and the Beast story. John never would have been able to infiltrate the wildlings without Egret, and his love for her, as we discussed, was very significant to his emotional growth, as well as influenced his actions and decisions as a leader. Okay, so Dog Lover, you've been a really fantastic guest. Radio Westeros wishes you, Lucinia, your contributors, and the Rethinking Romance project the best of luck. We will link our listeners to the project via our website and keep up the good work. Thank you. Again, we really appreciate the recognition and we just absolutely love Radio Westeros, so please keep on doing what you guys do. It's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye, dog lover. Goodbye. Okay, and a great interview there from Dog Lover. Now, one thing that goes very well with romance is rock and roll. And here's a song from the fandom. This is The Adam Brown with Jon Snow.
great song from the fandom the adam brown with john snow and we are rocking out at radio westeros do you like to rock out lady gwyn oh sure i do that's a great song yeah and adam described this solo as a wank wank guitar solo (laughs) (laughs) and you can check out the music from all our featured musicians on our website, radiowesteros.com. So let's move on now. And we're going to talk about Jon Snow and his name. Many people have speculated what Jon Snow's birth name might have been, given that we know that Ned gave him the name John. Jon Snow does sound a lot like John Doe, which is used in our world as a placeholder name for people whose names have been forgotten. So whether that's on purpose, we'll, we don't know, but it's interesting. And anyway, here's the quote from George telling us about the naming of John. Right. George said, Mothers could name a child before birth or during or after, even while they're dying. Danny was most likely named by her mother, Tyrion by his father, John by Ned. Could this be a subtle hint that John had another name before Ned came on the scene? It's very interesting that they could be named after the death of the mother. Right, and we've seen speculation that John's real birth name could have been Viserys because Rhaegar was perhaps trying to create the original trio and he already had an Aegon and a Rhaenys. So that would leave... Maybe uh, Visenya, if he was expecting a girl, or Viserys. 
Yeah, and Viserys is probably the male equivalent of Visenya. And another similar idea is that he could have been named another Aegon. And one name that isn't mentioned often is Aemon, and maybe that's because there's never been a King Aemon. But you were recently involved in some collective speculation at the Westeros.org forums that Aemon would be a great fit, right? Yeah. A poster called John Wargarian pointed out this quote, wondering if there was some sort of irony similar to Tyrion Lannister's thought about Jon's mother leaving nothing of herself in him. Here it is. But he had not left the wall for that. He had left because he was, after all, his father's son and Rob's brother. The gift of a sword, even a sword as fine as Longclaw, did not make him a Mormont. Nor was he Aemon Targaryen. So that's when John is going to leave the wall to join his brother's army. Yes, right. And I really love the clever, he was his father's son, paired with the name Aemon Targaryen. Yeah, and what would really fit about that is that John clearly idolised Aemon Targaryen, the Dragon Knight, as a youngster. Remember his memories of playing with Rob? Yeah, here's the quote. They were not little boys when they fought, but knights and mighty heroes. I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, John would call out, and Rob would shout back, Well, I'm Florian the Fool. But consider the next line where Rob would shout, I'm the young dragon. If you recall the relationship between Darren the First and Aemon the Dragon Knight... They're first cousins. Yes, bingo. Just like Rob and John, if R plus L equals J. Mm, yeah, I read that somewhere. I can't remember where. So credit to whoever thought of that one. Yeah, and Rhaegar had a special relationship with his great-great-uncle, Maester Aemon, didn't he? Yeah, they did. They communicated in letters about the prophecy. It's made clear that Rhaegar knew Aemon and sought his knowledge of family lore. Given Rhaegar's reputation as a scholar, it's probably not a leap to imagine that they had a relationship of mutual respect, at least. Yeah, I think there's probably some kind of admiration there between the two. So most of the references to the Dragon Knight in the books came from the Stark children, Bran, Sansa and Jon, and it's made pretty clear in several cases that these stories came to them via Old Nan. Right, and we know that Old Nan has been the caregiver and teller of tales to the last several generations of Stark children, and given Lyanna's predisposition to sword fighting, as well as her less well-known romantic side... Yeah, she who cried at Rhaegar's harp tune during the tourney of Harrenhal. So it's completely plausible that as a child, she might have been fascinated by the same Targaryen hero as Jon, who combined martial prowess and romance. Right. Now, fast forward to Lyanna bringing a Targaryen son into the world. Whether she had advice from Rhaegar on a boy's name in honor of his uncle, or if Rhaegar had expected a girl and left no instructions for a boy's name, or whether she simply chose a name on her own, if she was familiar with the tales of Aemon the Dragon Knight from childhood, it's quite possible that would be the name she would want for her son. So Aemon could be a name that would appeal to either or both Rhaegar and Lyanna, right? That's right, yeah. So it's interesting speculation. We think it's difficult to say one way or another for sure. So given one Aemon Targaryen was Jon's battle hero and another Aemon Targaryen was his mentor regarding wisdom, perhaps Aemon Targaryen might be an appropriate name for Jon. 
And that concludes today's analysis. Kill the boy, Jon Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. have it our look at Jon Snow with the previous Hyrule J episode we think we've covered good ground here yeah hopefully a lot for you listeners to chew on Jon is obviously one of the most popular characters in the books so we did give it our best shot and we loved covering Jon we hope you enjoyed our work now let's talk about next time yeah next time we will embrace the darkness and look at the long night in great detail right Yoke Boy and I have spent many hours discussing what will happen in the upcoming Long Night and realized the best way to do this is by examining the last Long Night. Yep, so we have studied the last Long Night very closely and we'll be sharing lots of thoughts, analysis and quite a lot of theories that you won't find anywhere else. We're actually really excited about this next episode, aren't we? Yes, we are. We've had ideas for this for a long time and can't wait to share them with you listeners. So come back next time to hear all about The Last Hero, Azor Ahai, Lightbringer, The Others, The Night's King, and more. But before we say goodbye, we have to credit the creations we used on this podcast. Yeah, so thanks to George R. R. Martin for his wonderful world, to the Adam Brown for his Jon Snow song, which we really loved, and also to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to remix and use elements of their music. And many thanks to Dog Lover for her contribution and appearance representing the Rethinking Romance Project. So check out our website at RadioWestros.com and from there you can read our essays and so on and reach all of our social media and links to guests and everything like that. I'm Yoke Boy. And I'm Lady Guinevere and we hope that you'll join us next time for our Long Night episode. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.